Hey guys, welcome to the Two Age Sojourner podcast. I'm Andre, uh, one of the co-hosts of the show. I'm on my own uh, today. Unfortunately, Mike, uh, who's the, the main host of the show, he's, he's ill. He's been jet-setting all around with his X-29 stuff and um, uh, he's lying in bed. His poor wife is mopping his brow and he's, I'm sure, milking it for everything it's worth. But uh, anyway, he's not going to be with us uh, today, but I know we haven't put out a uh, one of these in a while, and so I just wanted to um, to make sure we record something and get it out. Normally, it's a bit of a hang time if you're new to the podcast. I'm Andre. Um, I'm a pastor of uh, Bethesda Baptist Church in Felixstowe in the UK. My brother's a pastor of Grace uh, Grace Nets Community Church in Wellington, New Zealand. And we have other guys who come on the show as well. Nick, who's also a pastor in New Zealand, and uh, Chris, who's an author and uh, uh, and a podcaster himself out in the States comes along and helps us out with some Kleine and stuff. Um, the, the whole podcast is about living in the two ages, uh, sojourning through this uh, life as, as pilgrims. And uh, it, we're really exploring it from a reformedish sort of background. We're all from the reformed faith and uh, slightly different perspectives maybe, but all within the reformed faith, mostly Baptist and mostly two kingdoms, mostly Kleine. So there you go. Um, now, uh, if you're new to the show, it, this, the way we do these is they're very much not, not scripted. They're like hang times and we normally just hang out and have a coffee and press record and talk about stuff, pastor to pastor, about what it means to be uh, living as a two-age sojourner. Um, now, obviously, that sort of conversational thing is a little bit difficult to do when you're on your own. Um, and so, uh, however, there's been something I've been so keen to talk to Mike, uh, talk about with Mike on the podcast, uh, which is in dialogue with a Lutheran uh, named Jordan Cooper, who's sort of a convert from the Reformed world to the Lutheran world. Um, and uh, he has a conversation with a rapper named Flame. Um, about a new album that he brought out, which basically documents his journey from the uh, reform to Lutheran as well. Now, I'm guessing that for most of us, uh, we don't really know much about Lutheran theology, about Lutheran and how it's distinct from reform theology. Um, and that's okay. That's wrong. Um, I, uh, it's good for us to, to explore these things because we found that uh, Lutherans and Jordan Cooper, uh, because he's, he's a very knowledgeable confessional Lutheran, he's, he's a reliable source of information to tell you what Lutherans, um, uh, at least you know, according to their, on paper, what they would believe or respond to a certain thing. I found that the Lutheran critique of uh, the Reformed churches is very, very helpful. Um, I don't always see a great divide between Lutheran reform stuff. I'm sometimes, sometimes feel like Lutherans want to create more of a distinction from the Reformation, from, uh, not from the Reformation, but from reform churches and sometimes create more of a distinction than there actually is. I think there's, there's great similarities. And, um, and so what I thought it would be good to do is to go through this video um, it's a YouTube clip 
uh, hopefully the sound and everything is going to work. Um, and I'm going to sort of do a running commentary of the conversation between Dr. Jordan Cooper and Flame about the differences between um, the Ref Reformed and Lutheran churches on uh, the video is mainly about the five points of Calvinism, which Lutherans have a slightly different take on, not quite Arminian, not quite Reformed, something in between. Um, and mainly about assurance. Um, I think realistically, we're not going to get through the whole, the video itself is like an hour long. Uh, it's really worth a watch. Please go and check it out. Um, I'm going to seek to cover uh, the first kind of half of the video, which is mainly talking about assurance and about, well, which, which system of theology uh, provides more assurance for the, for the Christian? Is it, is it Calvinism and reformed Calvinism uh, with the five points? Does that create assurance or does that hinder assurance? Does that help or hinder assurance in, in the Christian and the Lutheran system too? Does that help or hinder assurance? Um, they're going to argue that the Lutheran system helps uh, the reform system hinders. And so um, we're going to be talking about assurance. How can you know uh, that you are, are saved and how can you experience peace with God on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, just before we get cracking into the video, I just want to say um, a, a few things about that in and of itself. The one is that um, I do think sometimes that we need to be careful with stuff like this because uh, arguments that go somewhere along the lines of uh, the ref, uh, reformed churches are better because they provide more assurance um, have their place, but we need to be careful because if assurance is our main desire, it can actually twist our theology so that we'll do whatever we can in order to get assurance regardless of what the Bible says. So um, I, I think that the Reformed tradition is the most helpful in providing assurance. But if assurance is our aim, we just need to be careful that we're not going to read the scriptures in a way or within a system that allows us to get that. Um, we can twist the scriptures to, to fit into a system that says what we want to say. And I think you just have to be careful. That's uh, everyone. Everyone can do that. All traditions, all systems of theology. We just need to be aware of it so that we're not doing that. And that's where I think most of danger of doing that. When we start off with a, with a question like, how can I get the most assurance or what, what system of theology is going to provide me with most assurance? Um, because the concern then becomes less about whether or not the system of theology adequately describes what the scriptures are saying and more to do with whether or not the system of, of theology says what I wanted to say about assurance. The second thing um, that I think we need to be aware of going into this is that uh, when uh, the whole question of assurance is a difficult one. It's not in any tradition straightforward. And the one thing I'm going to say in, in my comment on this video is it makes it sound a little bit more complicated or a little bit more straightforward, sorry, than it is. And the reality is there are scriptures that unsettle us and there are scriptures that uh, reassure us. And that is by design. Uh, we are meant to, at times in our Christian life, be unsettled so that we're driven to Christ. And we are meant to, uh, at times in our life, be reassured so that we cling to Christ. And so. Um, uh, 
I think that sometimes we can get hung up on this. Am I really a Christian? Is my faith really good enough? And I think actually uh, the, the trying to predict what you're going to be doing in 20 years time, 40 years time, um, at the end of your life is not really the, script, the way that the scriptures go about talking about assurance. Assurance is a day-by-day sort of thing. Yeah. So um, I know that tr- trusting in Christ today, I have assurance today. And I am trusting in Christ today that he will finish the work he started in me tomorrow. But if I don't trust in him tomorrow, then I can't draw assurance tomorrow. And so rather than trying to, um, you know, do something today that's going to secure your, your, uh, you know, your future and, and try and make predictions about what you're going to be doing in, in 5, 10, 15 years' time um, is, is ultimately going to fail because the final step of assurance is that you make it to the end. And the final step, and we know that there are people who, who um, are very strong believers or very persuasive believers and who do make strong professions of faith and live according to those prof- professions of faith and then reject those professions of faith. Um, and we know that, that none of us are above that. None of us are better than that. None of us are too strong for that. So um, ultimately trying to play the prediction game is always going to be met by those passages that say, well, you must persevere, you must persevere. And, um, and you must persevere. So uh, th- I think that's the problem. But if today I'm saying, well, I trust Christ today, I can draw assurance from that. I, Christ is my assurance today. And I pray that that would be the case tomorrow. Um, I, that's how I do it. That, that's, my, that's my pastoral advice. Uh, because I think that whole thing gets missed in this. Now, uh, without further ado, let me uh, put it over to the video. I'm not going to obviously cover the whole thing. I'm going to jump in at uh, eight minutes in. Um, and so uh, i get that up now. Hopefully that is working for you. Let me just quickly double check that I have got the, yes, that's all working. Okay. Um, so I'm going to jump in at eight minutes in. I apologize as well in advance. Mike normally does all this tech stuff and I'm very much sort of new to it. So I have no idea if I'm doing this right or not. No idea if it's working, but uh, man. Um, uh, so I, I really hope the one thing I know is going to happen and I don't know how to do it. And maybe someone can tell me how to do it is I don't know how to avoid the whole issue of adverts popping up when I'm trying to play through a, a, a YouTube video and the adverts are going to keep popping up and I've tried various things to try and get rid of it, but I can't. So I have no idea how that's going to work. I apologize if something about delivering flowers or losing weight or playing the guitar comes up because that's the sort of thing that's been coming up so far. So eight minutes in, uh, I just want to take you uh, a little bit further back. Nope, there, there we go. Okay, let's take it from here. Uh, I'm going to hand over to them, and then I'll stop and give a comment on the way. Yeah, that sounds great. I think uh, there's some things we got to talk about first, probably before we get into the text, and I think it'd be good for us to get into a few of those texts that are, that are used a lot uh, yeah. from those coming from that that perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we've got to put those in context. And I think part of that is you have to look at all of the books of the New Testament and say, especially the epistles, 
because you know these are Paul or Peter or whoever is writing those epistles, writing to the church. And we have to ask, how are they addressing those people? Are they addressing them with skepticism? Are they addressing them with, you might be saved if yeah. you have those fruits? So when they, when they do address those churches, usually it's things like, you are saints, uh, I've seen God's work in you. There's this assurance that really comes first in the way that, that the churches are addressed, the assumption that they've been baptized, they are in Christ, they are those who are of faith. Yeah. And then the text, I think we have to read in the context of those things. So some of it is no one's, no one's going to say there's no place for self-examination. Right. And I think we all have to, because Scripture says it, so yeah. unless you're going to deny what Scripture says. <laughs> right. like, now you got other issues. Uh, yeah, yeah. So we're, we're all going to say like it's important, but what's the context for it? You know, what's the proper, the proper place for it? So I think we have to see that the foundation of assurance is never going to be that self-examination. And when it, when it becomes the starting point or the foundation, that's where a lot of these issues really, really come up. Uh, and I think in the New Testament, it's not. It's definitely not the foundation. The foundation has to be something objective. And my assurance has to be in something that I can grab onto that's not inside of me. Because if the self-examination becomes the root or that's really where my focus is, then there are always going to be those times where you really struggle with sin, where you struggle with unbelief. You say, am I really saved? You know, did, is my faith really strong enough? Is it real faith? Is it false faith? You're going to come to those questions. And so there's really no place for something objective in terms of assurance when your focus is there. So the focus has to be on something external, right? Yeah. So the focus has to be on something outside of us. And that's the foundation and basis of assurance. And understanding that background and that context, you can then look at those texts and understand them better. So there's, and before we get into the text, one other thing I want to say. Is well, I'm just going to stop him there. Um, look, uh, one thing that's, that's come up that's really important um, in this so far is that um, the reality that we have to confront ourselves with is that when thinking about assurance, and when thinking about the discussion about whether or not you gain assurance from uh, from looking outside of yourself, extra nice, um, to the objective outside of ourself, work of Christ on the cross, He provides assurance, or whether or not you look to the subjective inside of ourself, work of the the Spirit that gives evidence that we are united to Christ by faith. Whether you not you do both of those things um, is 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 not a question of either or, it's a balance. There is there is there are texts in the scripture that urge you to examine yourself and there are uh, texts in the scripture that urge you to look beyond yourself and look outside of yourself to Christ. And uh, really important that he's drawn that out. The question is not so much a strict either or um, the question is putting the looking inside of yourself and looking outside of yourself into right into the right position into the right place, um, but also it, 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 or to to view it slightly differently is that that there is a kind of balance that has to be kept a kind of tension that needs to be kept healthy there because. Um, all objective, no subjective um, might leave you open to blind spots. All subjective, no objective is uh, going to ruin you one way or another. Um, so both Lutherans and Reformed and any Christian who's trying to make sense of the Bible, is reading the Bible, engaging seriously with it, is going to have to deal with these things. It's both and. The question is, what is the, the foundation 
or, or what's the central thing, what's fundamental, what's the right place for looking inside, looking outside. Um, so that's, that's really, really important. Um, I'm going to go uh, back there and skip us a little bit. No, I'm going to take him on to the next point because he's about to go on and say something uh, uh, and that's worth commenting on. So, uh, All of these little video clips are about a minute to two minutes in length. So there you go. Is that there's kind of this general principle that um, Lutheran theologian C.F.W. Walther talks about in his book, The Proper Distinction Between Law and Gospel, where uh, he talks about when we apply law, meaning God's commands and the warnings that come with it and the threats that the law brings, and then when we bring the gospel and the comfort and the assurance that the gospel brings. And the point that he gives is, over and over again there, is that to those who are secure in their sins, they need to hear the warnings they need to hear the law. So if somebody's living in unrepentant sin, just doing whatever they want to do, no care for God's law, no care for the word and the sacraments, they do need to hear those warnings. But when somebody is troubled in their conscience, when they have an anxious conscience, they need to hear the gospel. And so I think the problem with a lot of, of the church in understanding these texts is the wrong application of those things. And so those who are anxious about their salvation, those who are like, I know I'm a sinner, I want to be a Christian, sometimes can be pointed to, well, you better keep checking yourself to make sure you're really regenerate, which is just the wrong application. You're taking texts that are valid and good texts, but you're applying them in the wrong context. That's good. That's powerful. Yeah, and I think that's key. Right. Um, I'm going to give, uh, give Flame a chance to to talk as well. I'm not only going to do Dr. Jordan Cooper, but um, uh, the the key thing that's come up is the law gospel distinction. And I'm going to come back to that next to talk about that's a very Lutheran idea, very helpful Lutheran idea. Love it. Um, I think it's better within a reform system, but get to that in a sec. Um, but the point he's making there is that actually there's simply some pastoral wisdom here. The, the people who tend to be worried about their assurance um, are the people who are oversensitive uh, or who, who, who feel their sin, not oversensitive, that's not the right way of putting it, but people who feel, feel their sins very, very keenly and maybe struggle to see those same sins forgiven in Christ. Uh, there are different personalities. I mean, there are bullish people who just, you know, who literally cannot see their own madness. Um, and there are hypersensitive people who cannot see anything in themselves other than utter disaster. Um, there's kind of people who are like, I'm okay, everybody else is not okay. And then there are people who, who default to, I'm not okay, everybody else is okay. And then there are other people who, I'm not okay, nobody's okay. And it's just there's these default positions that came from some model somewhere, I can't remember. And uh, with all these these default positions, and personality types and all these kinds of things, it is going to make it um, bring in an element of pastoral sensitivity. However, there's one thing that he said there that I'm not quite so sure about. The one is uh, that when you meet someone who's, say, for example, not a Christian or is a, uh, a legalist or is somebody who's brash with their sin, that you confront them with the law, um, and I think that inevitably uh, that's going to be true to some extent. You've got to tell people who are uh, breaking commandments that they are breaking commandments. But I think that ultimately that's not the way that Paul does it in the New Testament. So 
Um, whenever he is addressing people who are, um, who are sort of going towards legalism, he emphasizes the gospel. When there are people going towards license, he emphasizes the gospel. Um, so his answer to both the people who are, who are um, too comfortable with their sin, uh, he emphasizes the gospel to them because the gospel is what's going to change their hearts and the gospel is what's going to convince them uh, to repent of sin. Um, and when people are, are um, sort of crushed by their own guilt, he emphasizes the gospel because that's what's going to leave it. The gospel does both of those things. And the preaching of the gospel includes the preaching of the law, obviously, because it's the gospel begins with uh, the fact that we are guilty and we are sinners and we've committed crimes against God. We've disobeyed his law and we need to be forgiven. We need our guilt to be removed. Um, and it's just interesting that in the New Testament, Paul doesn't, really go back to the law um, to, to break people before he builds them up by the gospel. Um, so so when, you, when you think of, say, for example, what he does in Ephesians, um, is his motivation for Christian obedience there is the gospel itself. Um, in Romans, uh, you know, after taking us through the, the gospel story of one, two, three, chapters one, two, and three, um, his motivation for Christian obedience and for not sinning in Romans six is the fact that we've died with Christ and been united to him. Um, so he doesn't say to the person, he says, well, let's just go on sinning. No, the law will condemn you. No, he says to the person, let's, um, uh, he says, no, remember that you've, You've been buried with Christ. You've died to sin and death in this world. And you've been raised to new life in him. Remember the gospel. Live accordingly. And so live a life worthy of the gospel seems to be the way Paul motivates obedience, both in the person crushed by guilt and in the person too comfortable with sin. Um, so, so I'm not sure. I, I mean, I, I, do, I don't totally disagree. There is obvious, obviously a place for administering law and saying, listen, this is the command, don't disobey it. But there's, it doesn't seem to be Paul's primary strategy for changing minds about things. It seems that he goes to the gospel. Right, let's go back to the video. Uh, and I'm going to take us a little bit further along to... Saying that you shouldn't... Yeah. Idea that well, yeah, yeah, the law the really has these two results because of our sinful nature. Yeah. And one of those is we become puffed up with pride because we think we're killing it. Yeah. Right? We think we're yeah. doing it. And exactly. then we're looking around at the people around us and thinking, well, they haven't grown as much as I have. Well, they're really struggling with that sin. Maybe they're really not saved. Yeah. Or we come to the point of despair. Mm -hmm. And that's really what the law does to us when it's not placed in the proper context. Yeah. And it's only when we understand the, the centrality of the gospel and the full and complete freedom we have in Christ and his righteousness that the law then becomes a guide where we don't have to be doing those things. We don't have to be in despair on the one hand, and we don't have to be judging others on the other hand, but it's only when the gospel has its right and central place and we find our identity there. Yeah, so this would be the law gospel distinction. Right. Okay, because I do think, you know, that distinction of, I guess, God's two words, right. two ways he speaks to his 
people. I think that sort of framework isn't readily available in everyone's mind. So it's a bit convoluted in that you just mash them both together at all times. And when you don't have that distinction, you don't quite know where to go. So you misapply, right? you know. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's the root of, of a lot of these issues is mm-hmm. a misunderstanding of law and gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the idea that God does speak in these two different ways. Mm-hmm. God gives promises and God gives commands, mm-hmm. right? Promises are his gospel and his commands are his law. Um, now, we're not saying that the gospel is good, the law is bad. They're right. both good, both but good. they have different functions. And if we can't, if we don't distinguish the functions rightly. Sorry about that. Uh, just freaking out because I couldn't find the controls. Right. We get all confused. Uh, and so where we find our assurance is never in the law, but it's in the gospel, in what Christ has done for us. Uh, so there's a you know common uh, way of, of teaching this reality that we teach to our kids and catechism and stuff which is sos which is the just the summary of what this is is that the law shows our sin the gospel shows our savior uh and um we have to see that distinction because all sorts of things just practically get all mangled when we don't have that distinction clear yeah. uh so it's something we got to keep before our minds all the time and and you know cfw Walther, i mentioned his book earlier mm-hmm. which is a great work on this um you know, he basically says it's the whole life of the theologian and just the Christian in general, not to be a theologian, but, but just of the Christian to figure out when to apply which, because we're so apt to do the wrong things. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think in and of ourselves, this is why, one of the reasons why we need God's word to come from outside of us, mm-hmm. because inside of us, we tend to apply these wrong. Right. We're in despair. Right. I'm just going to stop at that. So, um, uh, one of the key things about Lutheran uh, or the emphasis of Lutheran, so whereas in Reformed theology we tend to divide up uh, the Bible according to covenants, so um, covenants of works and covenants of grace, Lutherans tend to, t- uh, to divide up the scripture according to law and gospel. Um, I personally think this is one of the strongest things about Lutheran theology. It's why um, I think they have such a, a, a great sense of of grace and justification. Um, it's one of the things I really love and appreciate about Lutheran theology. And one of the things I've really appreciated about both um, Flame's album, Extra Nice, and about, uh, about Jordan Cooper's album, uh, album, <laughs> well, maybe raps, I don't know. Uh, and, uh, and the work that he's done is just this really strong emphasis on, on justification. And it rises out of this law gospel distinction. I think it's helpful. The one thing I'm, I'll say, though, is that I think that it's even more helpful, it's even stronger when that law-gospel distinction arises out of a distinction between covenants that are according to works and covenants that are according to grace. So when you are not only seeing the law-gospel distinction uh, take place, um, you know, just as as a kind of general principle where you're looking for laws and you're looking for promises or law, gospel, law, gospel. And so you're reading a verse, that's law, that's gospel. And, you know, and I think that when it arises out of, look, this, this whole section of the Bible is dealing with a covenant where God has uh, freely promised um, to save. And this section is dealing with a covenant um, where God has said you will be blessed if you obey and cursed if you disobey according to a works principle um i think that's really really helpful it's one of the things i like about Kleinian theology um and i think that if you kind of merge this law gospel distinction and 
Kleinian um, understanding of the covenants, I think, uh, which is in some ways, um, in some ways, quite similar to the 1689 uh, federalism thing. Um, if you don't know what that is, don't worry. But the 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 kind of Baptist way of putting together covenant theology, um, then. I think you, you get you get something good if you kind of merge all those together. I think you do come up with something uh, something great, um, because the problem that comes in, as he's pointed out, in most theological systems that go pear shaped on this, is that uh, they merge, they blur long gospel somehow. So the gospel becomes somehow not only about what's been promised to us. Uh, but also about things that are required from us. And the moment things that are required from us become part of the gospel, um, things start to get uh, very, very um, legalistic and, well, not the gospel. And the moment that the law becomes tangled in with promises rather than things that are required of us, and the only promises associated with, with the law are condemnation or blessing, depending on your performance. And so um, I think that the, when we start to confuse gospel and law, we end up with something very troubling. When we confuse law and gospel, we end up with the same. Um, so I just wanted to pause and, and highlight this about Lutheran theology. If you're new to it, it's, it's, it's something that I really like about it. I think it's, it's, it's prominent in Luther's writings and uh, a great thing. And I think that basically for a reform take on the law gospel distinction, just go to Michael Horton, go to the Whitehall sin. Um, Cause I think he does this really well and proves that a lot of Lutheran stuff is very compatible with reform stuff, but also proves that the Lutheran stuff is better uh, when taken within the framework of reformed covenant theology. Uh, right, let's move on now. So they, after making this point, um, they make one more introductory point before they go into some key texts. So um, I think what I'm going to do is I'm just going to cover this next introductory point and we're going to pause it there. Then in the next video, we'll come back and look at some of the passages because I know that when you're talking about assurance and you're talking about putting the emphasis on the external or the internal, it's all very abstract and it's all very sort of in the clouds. Uh, but what does, how does that actually help you when you're reading key texts like Matthew 7 or uh, 1 John or um, the book of James or something like that? So we'll, we'll look at some of those texts and, and uh, Jordan Cooper has very, very helpful things. I, I might come back, but I do also want to uh, move beyond the issue of assurance and look at some of the five points of Calvinism, particularly limited atonement and the perseverance of the saints, which are the ones that the Lutherans aren't so happy with. And I want to come back and look at those um, a little bit as well. But he's about to make an outrageous claim about limited atonement and, so, uh, and about how it affects our assurance. And so I just want to go there. So I go there and do this thing. Uh, we haven't had any adverts so far. This is amazing. Very good. Very good. No weight loss adverts. Okay. Right. Let's do this. Ah, oh, here it comes. Right. So, um, because there are a lot, there are, and this is a point that, you know, I've heard in response to this. Uh, 
you have that nagging question of how do I know it's for me because it was only for the elect. And if that's the case, you really have no choice but to look inward because you're left with this series of questions, which is, I look for my assurance in Christ, but how do I know that Christ died for me? Perspectives in the broader Calvinist world, like it's pretty big. Yeah. And, and almost anything you say, Calvinists believe this, there's going to be a group that says, no, we don't. Um, so that's just always going to be the case. But um, Right, just a quick note on that. I mean, um, he's right. The Reformed world is much bigger than we sometimes think it is. And there are lots of views within it. And so, again, I, I just want to, I sometimes feel like uh, Dr. Cooper is driving a wedge between Reformed and Lutheran. And I, this may have something to do with the history of Lutheranism that he covered when he was on the podcast um, a little while ago. And he spoke about basically how at one point or another, the Lutherans and the Reformed merge and that led to a loss of identity. And the reaction to that is that Lutherans have more or less kept to themselves, which is why they don't really hang out with other reformed and evangelical guys um, because they're sort of protecting their own uh, identity, their, their own theological system from being sort of just um, absorbed into the reformed world. And while I do kind of get that, I also think that um, it, it's, it, it's a great shame because I think that sometimes uh, Lutheran thoughts there are very real differences between Lutheranism and Reformed thought. It's mainly to do with sacraments. A lot of the stuff that he's talking about now um, uh, uh, to do with emphasis and assurance and those, it's very, it could just as easily take place as a kind of polemic within the Reformed world. The, you know, Reformed guys are debating the emphasis on, on the objective and how much you put on your own your own subjective um, experience and fruits and, and your own growth in godliness and the role of that in assurance. I mean, this could all be a conversation within the reformed world. Um, even the five points of Calvinism are a conversation within the reformed world. So, you know, you've got, there is a history within the Reformation of people challenging one or, one or two of the points of, of Calvinism. So while I am a five-point Calvinist, I think that that isn't, doesn't necessarily mean um, that there's a massive divide. Um, the, the five points of Calvinism, just by the way, for those who don't know, is tulip. Um, it's just an easy way to remember it, not necessarily the most helpful way to describe it, but it's an easy way to remember it. Uh, which is total depravity, that we are totally, every part of us is tainted and corrupted by the fall. Um, we're not as evil as we could be, but every part of us is corrupted. Um, total depravity, unmerited election, uh, which means that God chooses us not on the basis of anything inside of ourselves. There's no merit in us that makes God think, oh, I've got to have Andre in the kingdom. Um, Limited atonement, um, again, not a helpful way of describing it, but it fits in with Tulip. So uh, it basically means that Christ died specifically to save his people. Christ died for the elect. Uh, rather than just kind of dying for everyone and then um, some of that blood being wasted or some people saying no to that. Uh, no, he, he died to save specifically his people and he did save his people. Um, limited atonement. Uh, irresistible grace goes along with that because if Christ is going to die to save his people and if he does save his people then they will be saved they can't 
resist that, ultimately the Holy Spirit will change their hearts and minds and bring them to saving faith. Um, and then uh, perseverance of the saints is the last one, uh, which is that the, the final um, evidence of, of those people for whom Christ has died is that they will persevere to the end. And you know that if someone does not persevere to the end, that they were never one of the elect in the first place. Um, so that's Tulip. Lutherans are happy with three of them. He's about to go after, after uh, limited atonement. So let's make this one final comment, and then we'll bring this video to a close. Um, what they've brought up is we do point to Christ. We do point to his atonement for assurance. We do point to the sacraments. But I think limited atonement really makes that impossible. Um, and, and just logically, because limited atonement says Christ only died for the elect. In whatever way you want to parse that out, and people will debate exactly what that means and how it works. But um, if Christ only died for the elect, if that was the true intention of, of his cross, then anytime you're looking to the objective work of Christ for, um, for assurance, you have that nagging question of, how do I know it's for me? Because it was only for the elect. And if that's the case, you really have no choice but to look inward because you're left with this series of questions, which is, I look for my assurance in Christ, but how do I know that Christ died for me? Well, if I'm elect, how do I know I'm elect? If I have faith, how do I know my faith is genuine? By my fruits. How do I know my fruits are genuine and not just like hypocritical fruits by my affections? Yeah. And I think that's just the logical necessity. That's where it has to go. Yeah. So you're ultimately left in this place of, if you want to know if you're saved or if Christ died for you, the foundation in some way, I think logically has to be, I'm looking inward. Yeah. Because it's only by my inward affections that I really know that Christ died for me and therefore I can look to him. Um, but there is that felicitous inconsistency, which is, they're not all consistently doing this. I mean, I've heard plenty of preaching in Reformed churches that's very, you know, clear on the gospel and very clear on assurance in Christ and what he's done. Um, but I think that's ultimately an inconsistency with limited atonement. Uh, and that really is a root of a lot of those issues. Yeah, totally agree. So, shall we? Right. <clears throat> They're about to move into some text. Gets very exciting. Let me just say that that argument, man. So... On the one hand, the problem that he's highlighting there, that if you are looking within yourself constantly further and further back, and trying to go deeper and deeper inside to work out whether or not you're a true Christian, that is a problem. I think that is a, um, can be a kind of implicit denial of justification by faith alone, where you say on the one hand, I believe I'm saved purely because of what Christ has done. And yet on the other hand, you live rather than living by faith in what he's done. You're living by faith in what you're doing to, to show you that you truly belong to him. And I think that's a real problem, but it's got nothing to do with limited atonement. And I know this because first of all, loads of Christians do that. It's not just reformed Christians who do that. Let me just stop this here. And um, so loads of, loads of Christians do that. I mean, I used to be, before I was part of the Reformed Church, I used to be part of a charismatic church. And they were doing it then. They didn't even have the foggiest about limited atonement or perseverance in the saints or the tulips or whatever. There were no tulips anywhere in sight. And, um, and they did this. It's not a limited atonement thing. Um, so while I understand that you could make that case, I just don't think practically that's how it works out. Uh, the second thing is that all throughout that video, um, 
and you haven't really seen so much of that because I've just been highlighting little clips. But all throughout that video, um, they've been saying, look, there's this, you do have, there is a place for self-examination. And everybody, everybody has got to grapple with that question. Now, you know, have I, um, have I trusted Christ or not? Am I a Christian or not? And sometimes that question gets complicated. Any pastor will, will be able to tell you that there are times when it's very, very clear, and there are times when it's not so clear. There's times when you trust somebody's profession, but you there's a niggling doubt there. I, I am, but you you don't want to try and put yourself in the place of God and judge people's thoughts and attitudes and that kind of thing. So you take them at their word. But there are, and there are other times when people are confidently professed to be Christian, but their lifestyle clearly contradicts that. And so, um, even for Lutherans, you have to reckon with this. Everybody has to reckon with this. And it's not only those who believe in limited atonement who deal with this. Now he might be saying that limited atonement exacerbates the issue. Um, but I don't think that's the case at all. And, and, I, and I, my counter argument is that the whole thing, the beauty of limited atonement, which is not a good way of putting it, it's not about limiting the atonement, it's about specifying the atonement, specific redemption. That Christ died specifically for the purpose of redeeming his people. It means, here's, here's the thing, it means that Jesus' death actually does something. And that cannot, I think, by any reasonable account, lead to less assurance than a view that says Jesus' death doesn't actually do anything. So what do I mean by that? I mean, well, obviously, the, the standard Reformed response to people who are rejecting uh, limited atonement is that, well, what is the death of Christ actually doing for you? What does the atonement do? If it's only making salvation available, but at the end of the day, it's up to us, well, what happens to my assurance then? Surely I've got to then look even more carefully at myself to see whether or not I've taken hold of um, the thing that Christ has made available, but not fully achieved. Because I've got to, I've got to finish it off. So, I think if anything, that argument goes the other way. I'd much rather hold to a view of the atonement where Christ saved me. And that all I'm saying is that if I have come to trust in Christ, I know that he came to save me. Um, it's through faith in Christ. So you, there's no need to dig deeper. And I think this is the, this is the question of emphasis. Now, what the irony is when he goes on to, to look, he's look at Matthew, he's going to look at three texts, Matthew seven, uh, two Corinthians 13 and uh, one John. And uh, it, the, the irony is I agree with, with in large part, his exegesis for most of those things. And I think they, they are perfectly reformed ways of reading the text. Um, but the, 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 the kind of little quick attack on limited atonement there makes no sense. That's all. Uh, anyway, that's my two cents worth. Um, if you are a Lutheran, Lutheran and you're watching this, uh, then well done. And hopefully I haven't offended you too much. But the, uh, 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 I really do think for Reformed guys, there's lots of good criticisms um, that we can, we can take from the Lutheran world. I don't think... Um, 
that they are necessarily Lutheran versus Reformed issues, but I think there is an emphasis in, in confessional Lutheranism that uh, the Reformed folk would do well to pay attention to. But I also think that those, uh, those Lutheran emphases are much stronger within a Reformed system. That's my two cents worth. Um, I'm hoping to do another one and pick up on some very, very interesting things that come up in the rest of this video. Um, so if you enjoy it, let me know and uh, we'll, we'll keep doing that. Okay, uh, that's all from me. And oh, and thank you again to Jeremy Casello for the intro and outro music. If you, uh, Indelible Grace is fantastic. It has some great songs of praise, great hymns. Uh, check it out on Spotify, Apple Music, and other, other places. Uh, Jeremy Casello has written the music for this, and it's fantastic. We love it. It's a version of God, Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. So thanks to him. And um, hopefully Mike will be back up and running and be able to join me for the next one. All righty. See you later.